Uh, welcome to the Living Undeterred podcast. This is your host, Jeff Johnston, and I'm super excited to speak with Tina Miller. Uh, I met Tina on the Living Undeterred U.S. tour uh, in uh, North, what was it again, Port Ritchie? <laughs> so, no, just north of Tampa. Yes, yeah, I'm in uh, Newport Ritchie, which is north of Tampa. Newport Ritchie. Yes. I got the north of Newport messed up. <laughs> Uh, 95 days on the road will make you make you a little delirious. Absolutely, um, I believe. But it. no, I really really excited to speak with you. I was um, honored to meet you at the event, hear your story, reached out to you, uh, said, "Hey, Tina, I got to get you on the show. Hear a little bit more about um, what you do now, where you came from, and really how you embody the living undeterred uh, spirit and mindset." So, with that, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share. So how did you and I end up connecting? How'd you get involved on the Living Undeterred U.S. tour? So I actually was invited through Jennifer, uh, which is um, with Live uh, Tampa Bay. And the reason why I was connected with her is because I'm a woman in long-term recovery from addictions. 24 years I celebrate, substance-free. And... I opened up the first recovery high school for teenagers seeking recovery from addictions in Tampa Bay. And so that's how Jennifer uh, and I had met and she invited me to your event. I, when I heard that you started a high school, I went, huh, what? Wait a minute. Uh, nobody just starts a high school. Uh, <laughs> you know, you can start a nonprofit, you could write a book. You can do a podcast, but no one, no one that I've met yet just starts a high school. So tell me a little bit about where this came from. Let's, let's learn a little bit about you and then we'll get to eventually, uh, how you ended up where you are today. So I actually was born and raised in Ohio and my father was an active, uh, alcoholic, uh, until I was four years old, he found a 12 step recovery program. So I always joke around that my first AA meeting was when I was four years old and I should have just stayed, <laughs> but I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> I grew up and had to go on my own path of destruction <laughs> and to realize that I needed That's help. Right. <laughs> but uh, so, you know, it's funny. I always share with young people that have parents that are, you know, alcoholics or addicts that you either have people like me that was like, I will never be my father, you know, I'll never drink like him, I'll never be an alcoholic, you know, and all that. Or you have people that are just, they won't even pick up a substance because they really don't want to become like their parent. And unfortunately, I was one, you know, that, oh, I'll never be like him. And so I drank differently, you know, um, than he did. And I didn't get DUIs like he did. So I thought I was different. But um, it was, it was all up here. That was the same. Um, and anyway, so I, I, as I, I'm going to back up a little bit as a small child, I didn't like, yeah. I didn't start talking until I was three. I, I had an older sister that yeah. actually talked for me and I haven't quit talking since I started, but, um, I remember retreating to my closet and that was my safe place and I would write or color, you know, but I just, I didn't feel like I had a voice at a very young age. And that's very relevant to my story when I share, you know, um, later more, but, um, 
I didn't feel like I had a voice and, you know, I was in this, um, in this family that, you know, my parents did the best they could with what they had. And I realized that today Mm -hmm. as a parent and as an adult, uh, that I just, I've come to a place of forgiveness for them and, um, with Mm -hmm. them kind of had to grow up with them. So, uh, at, like I said, at four years old, my dad got sober and, um, you know, I truly believe that saved his life. It probably saved all of our lives as well, the family. And then um, at nine, at seven years old, uh, my best friend was kidnapped, raped, and murdered. And that was very, um, that was very uh, impactful in my journey because I had survivor seven, guilt. Yeah, seven years seven old. Seven years old. And so I had survivor guilt. She was missing for wow. three days. And I remember searching for her dead body, and going through the woods, and um, doing things that a seven, a typical seven-year-old doesn't do, you know. Uh, but I also remember mm-hmm. saying to myself, "It should have been me, or I should have stopped yeah. it." Uh, so I had survivor guilt at seven years old, and I actually carried that around for about twenty years until I really went to uh, sure. therapy for that and realized it wasn't my fault. And it was, I was seven years old. I was a child, but nobody, you know, back then in the eighties in 82, 83, um, people, you know, they didn't have grief counseling and they didn't have all the mental health services right. like they have now, um, especially school counselors and right. that. Um, so it was a very traumatic period in my childhood. And I didn't have the emotional support of my parents or other adults in the community. So it was, um, it was really tough. And, uh, and like I said, it was a moment actually where I made God irrelevant in my life because I, I thought if there was a God, then he wouldn't have killed my best friend. Um, so I became an atheist at seven years old. And I share that because okay. that, um, is where a lot, I think, of my students can relate. Uh, there's something traumatic that has happened in their lives, and maybe they've made God irrelevant in their life. So um, I share that little They're bit. Angry. Yes. Angry at somebody. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I was extremely, I was an angry atheist <laughs> for many years. So then, uh, so at 14 years old, at what, nine years old, I started to smoke cigarettes. I would pick up cigarette butts off the ground and I'd roll grass, corn silk. You know, I lived in Ohio, <laughs> so um, not much to do. Um, and I mean, I remember rolling up paper right. plates and smoking them and just, I know my students are looking at me like, oh my gosh, lady. <laughs> I just... Uh, it, it was disgusting, but what I was finding myself doing is I was trying to escape the pain, the survivor guilt, the hurt that I had felt as a child. And, and then I started at 14 years old, I started to drink and then I had gone through years of rape and domestic violence. And so that was just a whole recipe of disaster, you know, of destruction right. and disaster. And so right. lots of childhood trauma, uh, lots of violence and um, a lot of abuse. So I then by 18 years old, I was drinking and, you know, using drugs every day. I thought it would be a great idea to go to college. <laughs> 
so I, I barely graduated from high school and I barely, you know, barely made it into college. I attended the University of Akron and uh, right away started all the risky behaviors and started dating a drug dealer because it was convenient. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, hanging out with all the wrong people in the wrong places at the wrong time. Right. It just, yep. I, you know, one of the things I share with people is um, it's not about scared straight. You know, research shows scared straight does not work. Uh, you can't scare right. someone that wants to die. And I wanted to die. So it didn't matter what people would say to me. They would try to tell me these horrific stories. And, they, you know, the same thing with my students, you know, when people try to come in and they try to um, scare them. And it's like at that point, when a person wants to die, they, they can't be scared. And so I, I was helpless and I was hopeless at the time. And I just wanted to die. And I remember in 1997, um, or 1996, my, uh, my father said, I'm not going to pay for a party. And my parents cut me off financially. And I'm so grateful for that. And it was, it was probably the hardest, you know, decision they've ever made. But it saved my life. Because what it made me do is it made me step back. I had to get two jobs. I had to, you know, pay for myself to live. But also I had to try to, you know, pay for my addictions. And so that didn't go very well. Um, and I quickly spiraled out of control. I had failed nine classes in college, even bowling wow. and dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> and I tell my students that I'm dinosaurs like, dinosaurs, <laughs> I know, right? There's actually a class called How dinosaurs. How do you fail dinosaurs? I know, right? <laughs> oh my gosh. It was like a 0.5 credit too. But, you know, I just never attended and uh, I still have a resentment right. towards my bowling teacher because I, I didn't go to bowling class, you know, the entire time I show up the last day, I bowled a 198 and she was like, you failed. I'm like, I bowled a 198, but um, she looked down at Who my feet I know, class, right? Right? <laughs> and he, she looks down at my feet and she's like, and you might want to get bowling shoes next time. I had walked over a mile in the snow in my slippers and I had my pajamas oh, on. Wow. And you know what? When you're at a bowling alley, you have to give your shoes to get bowling shoes. And I'll never forget, right. you know, taking off those slippers and they were just like caked with, you know, sludge and what, you know, ice. And it was, right. they were so gross and disgusting. And I just remember that was one of these moments of clarity, like, wow, I have really lost it. I just walked this whole way to the bowling alley for this class in my slippers, in my pajamas. Like, it's just, you know, so it was just one of those moments of clarity where I was like, oh, yeah, this, this isn't good. But she failed me. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, I bowled good, but only because I took bowling when I was young and I knew how to bowl. But anyways, um, so yeah, so I had failed nine, you know, nine classes. Um, also another thing that was happening to me in college was, uh, my relationships. I, I remember always saying that if I started to hurt people I loved, then I knew that that was like the line that I had crossed. Uh, because social drinkers don't hurt people they love. Um, people that, 
you know, may smoke here and there. They, typically, it's not affecting their relationships. And but I, I was um, severing all these relationships. And I remember someone saying to me that I, I, I didn't treat them well at all. And you know, they had called me a few names what they did, but I won't say it on your show. And I remember thinking, like, that's not who I am. And and I don't want to be known as that person. So I thought, okay, um, it's the drugs. So I quit the drugs in 97. I was like, that's it. I'm done with the drugs. That's what's causing me to be, you know, not nice to people. Uh, That's what caused me to fail all these classes and all that. So I quit the drugs. But of course, what happened is my alcoholism increased. Went up. Oh, it was out of control. And I remember I did everything, you know, that a good alcoholic does is I remember scheduling like, okay, I had a a tabletop calendar and I was like, okay, on Saturday, and I put a big star on my calendar on Saturday, I'm going to drink, but I won't drink all week. You know, you know how that goes is you try to control your drinking and use. Right. And Wednesday came along. Your drinking, your drinking's controlling you. That's right. You're not controlling your drinking. So Wednesday would come along at somebody's birthday, and they'd invite me. Oh, okay, so I yeah, of course. Erase gotta this. Go, gotta go drink. <laughs> That's right. Erase the store on Saturday. Put it on Wednesday. Okay, I'll drink tonight, but I won't drink any other time. And so what started right. to happen was, as soon as I would drink, I would lose all control. I start. I did everything I said I would never do. I started to drink by myself. I started to drive drunk. I started getting in fights drunk. I would go to bars by myself. I switched my alcoholic drinks because I used to drink classy beer like Natural Light. And then I switched to boxed wine because I was super classy. And- oh, that's a big step up. Yeah. <laughs> And so it was like, you know, at 23, I was 23 years old, you know, female in Akron, Ohio and drinking boxed wine. And it was like, I thought I was classy. Now, did you know, did you know, did you know, Tina, that you had a drinking problem? Because I look at my life and I, I drank since eighth or ninth grade in high school and drank, you know, five days a week all the way till probably I was, you know, 50. So, but I never really realized I had a drinking problem until later, I mean, after college, after getting married, because I, I either was in complete denial yeah, uh, or I had enough, I, have, I had enough enablers in my life that they were supplying me with validation that I wasn't an alcoholic. So I actually had the opposite. My dad would constantly share things with me about his recovery and I was very well aware of alcoholism and drug addiction and how addiction started and, you know, all of that. So it wasn't necessarily, I don't remember ever being in denial. I think I was more in denial thinking, huh. okay, it's just the drugs and it wasn't the alcohol that I was, I struggled. Or you'll outgrow it. You'll just outgrow it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like 23 years old. You know, and everyone I was around in college drank like me. Um, but I did, right. I do, um, I, I do looking back, I do realize that the way I drank wasn't typical uh, 
female, you know, early twenties, female drinking. Like (laughs) I would hang out with 12 guys. Like this is another moment of clarity. I remember being at a bar and my street name was Tay Tay. And so all my guy friends, <laughs> my students have seen Tay Tay a few times. They all just looked at me like, oh God. They're they're finding they're finding out a lot about you, Tina. Yeah, they've heard my story, but yeah, and they and they have seen Tay Tay. They know Tay Tay once in a while. Um I have to you know, you still kind of have a little street, you know, thug in you, even when you get sober and clean. Yeah. <laughs> so anyways, um uh, so I I remember being at a bar with my 12 guy friends and my 12 and see, I hung out with guys because I drank like them. And I remember my guy friends saying, you know, Tay Tay, why don't guys ever hit on you? (laughs) Now I look back and I'm like, well, because I was hanging out with 12 guys. Hello. One guy, right. one guy in the right mind is going to come up to a girl, only girl with 12 guys. You, know? you had a little bit of protection. You had a little bit of protection <laughs> yeah. there. But also I remember them going up to this one, you know, a couple guys at the bar and they said, Hey, you, you know, that, that young lady and you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen her around. And they said, you know, what do you think of her? And they're like, you know, oh, she's cute. And, you know. And then they'd say, well, would you ever like hit on or, you know, like pick her up or, you know, date her? And they're like, oh, no. And I remember just looking at him like, oh, my gosh, like they had a really strong reaction to that. And then the words that came out of their mouth next was she's unpredictable. We don't know if she's going to kill someone or if she's going to laugh with someone. (laughs) And I was like, oh, my gosh, like that's what really like made me realize that is not the person I want to be. I don't want to show up and people be scared of me or hurt. So that was another moment of clarity. But I think for the most part, um, in 1997, actually, my sister and I started going to Al-Anon. And because we thought our dad really screwed us up. And so I had exposure of a 12-step recovery program. And I got a sponsor. She was the most grateful person. Gosh, she's one of these, you know, people that is like so grateful every day. And I was like, will you be my sponsor? She's like, I'm thrilled. And I'm like, I should have never asked her. (laughs) But what she did, her name was Lenora. (laughs) I'm so grateful today for Lenora because what she did is she transformed my mind um, and helped me be grateful. Um, every day I had to call her and tell her five, How? five things I was grateful for. And, and she went, I swear she would like write it down. And so I wouldn't repeat it. <laughs> so she'd be like, um, I'd call her in September and be like, I'm grateful for air. And she's like, yeah, you used that July 18th. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh my gosh. So I had, to, right. I had to come up with five more things. So she held you accountable. She, she, did. Had, she held you accountable yes. in a sense. Yes. She held me yeah, accountable. Not, was that, was that really the first person in your, was that the first person in your life that had really started to hold you accountable? Yes. I would say in a spiritual sense, you know, emotional and mental health sense. Yeah. That was the first time somebody held me accountable and I'm really grateful for her. And she took me through the steps. So during working a fourth step and Al and I realized that, wow, uh, I'm starting to realize like I have feelings and, um, and that I, um, I, I, my actions, you know, actually do affect other people. And I, I hurt people and it started, I started to be accountable for all of the 
all the actions, even if I wasn't drunk, you know, just being um, the dysfunctional, unhealthy, miserable person I was and how that was affecting people. And, um, you know, it's just all about changing those behaviors. And um, so I realized I was an alcoholic and the first person I went to was my dad. And I went to my dad on a Tuesday night because I knew he was going to his AA meeting. And I knocked on the door and he opened the door and he was like, you know, like, oh, he thought I was dead. You know, I hadn't talked to him for like six months. And he's like, what do you want? And I go, well, it's Tuesday night, dad. I said, um, are you going to your AA meeting? And he said, yes. And I said, um, I, w- I want to go with you. And he's like, you do? And I said, yeah. I go, wow. I think I'm a pickle. Right. <laughs> I couldn't even say I was an alcoholic. I said, I, I think I'm a pickle. I think I'm a pickle. <laughs> And he says, uh, does that mean you like girls? <laughs> I said, no. <laughs> he it I, you I had them all confused. <laughs> so I said, no. I said, um, I said, you know, when you have a cucumber, it has too much juice. It becomes a pickle. And it can never be a cucumber ever right. again, you know? And so he's like, so you're saying you're an alcoholic and you want to go to a meeting with me? I said, yes, yes, please. So he says, okay, well, let's go. So we went to this Alcoholics Anonymous meeting together. So I went back to AA with my dad. Uh, like I said, I should have stayed when I was four mm-hmm. years old. But um, so I, I, I really dove headfirst into 12-step recovery Um I saw what it did to my dad and our family. And so I was surrounded by people that loved me ever since I was you know, a kid. And it was a very supportive environment, taught me a new way of, um, of living, a new way of life. And um, <clears throat> then I slowly right. began to understand, you know, the higher power concept and took baby steps into developing my faith. And, um, but for me, I also had to go to therapy and I had to do a lot of support groups and a lot of meetings. I did, I actually attended 116 meetings in 90 days and I wasn't court ordered. Wow. But I was told that wow. all the manipulation, the control, the lying, you know, everything that I did in my, um, in my addiction, if I, put that energy into my recovery, then I have a chance. And so that's what I did is I really, I dove headfirst into my recovery. And so by doing that, I graduated from college and by the grace of God, (laughs) and, uh, uh, I, I went straight into social work. And so I've worked over 24 years in social work and juvenile justice. And I learned through that process that there were young people that were coming into detention or residential facilities, and they would get a little sobriety, go back to the traditional schools, and they would relapse like that. And I said, wow, there's a huge gap in these services. And so what I did was I started to research recovery high schools. And I found that there was like 47 recovery high schools throughout the United States. Only one in Florida, and it was in Jacksonville. So I contacted the Jacksonville executive director, Dan, and uh, he became my mentor. So for three years, I had um, received mentorship and research. And then I quit my state government job August 2020. 
and dove had first started this nonprofit and opened the first recovery high school April 2021. And it has gone So what's the name of your nonprofit? The nonprofit is Florida Recovery Schools of Tampa Bay. Okay, so still let's go back before I lose anybody, even myself. So when you say high school, I think of the traditional you know, public, uh, high schools, uh, where they have their, you know, mandates or curriculum and all that. So what's a recovery high school and, and how are they similar? And how are they different? So we are a private nonprofit school. So we are totally separate from the public school okay. system. Um, so what that allows okay. us is it allows us to have autonomy and it allows us to, uh, basically create our own schedule and what it is that we're going to offer our students. And so we accept ages 14 and 19 years old. All of our students receive mental health services, a, a recovery support, and an education. So our academics is online, and it's a great program specifically for our population. But um, during the day, we do things like equine therapy, expressive art therapy, visual arts, drumming, yoga, meditation, sound healing. Um, today, actually, when I'm done here, I'm taking my students to a local college for a visit. Um, so we do uh, so different visits like that. So is this uh, curriculum something that is transferable to post high school yes. um, college or is this okay. So explain how that works. So it's a, an accredited online curriculum and they actually can receive their diploma uh, from us. Uh, we had a student just graduated in July. She received her diploma. She had a, a 3.11 GPA as well as 87% attendance rate. And we're a year round school. So our students are with us throughout the whole summer. Oh. Yeah. And so um, we do take a few weeks off here and there. Uh, but for the most part, it's really important for our students to be with us during the summer. Uh, it gives them that extra support they need. Uh, but yeah, the curriculum is but it's accredited. Mostly online. It's mostly online, Tina? The, it's mostly online? The, the actual credits uh, curriculum is online. Okay. But we, we offer uh, electives. And mental health services. Okay. In person. Okay. So, uh, but 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 your students have a actual place. Obviously, you're sitting at your school yeah. right now. Uh, and how many students are how many students are in your school right now? So right now we have like, two students. Um, we have served eleven students over the past year, and um, okay. these are students that have co-occurring disorders. Uh, so they have a mental illness as well okay. as substance use disorder. A lot of them have come to us and they've been expelled or suspended from public schools. Um, some of them come straight from residential drug treatment. And so, you know, they just need a stable, safe environment so that they can heal and we meet them where they're at. So basically what I did is I created a high school that I needed <laughs> as a teenager. Yeah, exactly. It's the one you would have designed if you could have. So how many students are in your room right now watching this podcast? Uh, two. They're, they're just sitting right here. Well, tell them I'm proud of them. So. He, he says he's proud of you guys. 
Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're both yeah, because you know, I guess one thing that we do in this, uh, I don't know, industry, I guess you'll call it. I, and I call it the mental health industry because, uh, you know, obviously with my story, my son overdoses, my wife with alcoholism, mm -hmm. my own alcoholism, my compulsive gambling, you know, uh, but I, I didn't have any childhood trauma. So for me, you know, my issues stemmed from being bored in high school mm. and being understimulated because I played sports and I had attention deficit. Uh, I always felt like I needed to be doing something. So drinking was just kind of like an exploration for me. Yeah. So I wasn't running from anything. I wasn't trying to mask my pain and suffering uh, until, until Seth died. And then my drinking kind of morphed into, well, now I'm suffering. I need to drink. I need to numb my pain. So I think what's really interesting as I kind of travel down this road I'm on is how each story mm -hmm. is so unique and so, but, but, but the, the end result, you know, like death yes. say is the same, you know, or the end result, uh, let's say, you know, uh, well, let's say you take your own life, for example, uh, you know, death is the same no matter what the cause is, but the causes are often very different. And so what I'm trying to do is, is, you know, my focus is kids too, Tina. Mm -hmm. That's where I really want to, that's where I think we move the needle and at living undeterred, we're designing some online. Uh, I'll be kind of careful how much I can divulge because we have some pretty exciting announcements coming down the pipe, but we think that to move the, the needle, which I hate using that term. I started saying move the needle. And I thought that's not probably the best thing to use in the substance abuse, <laughs> substance use yeah, disorder yeah, uh -huh. uh, area is, yeah, I, I, it dawned on me. I'm like, that sounds terrible, Jeff, especially because <laughs> that's how my son died yeah. was a needle with, you know, heroin and fentanyl. Mm. But maybe that's metaphorically the way I have to, maybe that's how I have to approach this is be right at, be direct, you know? Yeah. Um, but going back to how I think, how I think we change behavior, you talked about uh, maybe fear and, and hope. It's like, there's so much scare tactics and fear on this side of the fence that we need to start putting in some hope and inspiration. Yes. And I think, I think the kids are the future, you know, to get, to get Tina to quit drinking two bottles of Pinot Grigio or to get Jeff Johnston to stop going to the casino. That's not going to change the narrative on mental health, substance use disorders and addiction. Um, that's, that's rehab, you know, mm -hmm. uh, or recovery, but to really change things, we need to change behavior. Yeah. And that starts with kids. And I mean, kids, I mean, adolescents, I say basically 25 and under, mm -hmm. uh, and that's where I want to spend most of my time trying to, um, make a difference from what happened to me, use that as a, you know, as a impetus to focus on the kids. So I think what you're doing is exactly where I want to be as well. And that's, I think the key, you know? Yeah, definitely. It starts with the kids. Yes. And they need hope. And, you know, I think back of when I was their age and, and then even as an early, you know, 20 year old, the last thing I needed to be told was I was going to hell because I was living hell. You know, yeah, like, exactly. don't tell me right. something I already know and feel. So what I hell can't be much worse that's right. than what I'm yeah, doing. I'm yep. like, I'd rather hell right now, you know? 
Yeah, but I do remember my friends, um, they had gone to a church and they had said, you know, you should come to this church. And I was like, why? And my one friend was in and out of prison, you know, and the other one was married and divorced like four times. So I was like, well, maybe if, if they have a chance at this church, maybe I have a chance, you know? And I remember them saying right. like, they love us exactly how we are. And I was like, really? You know? And, um, and then I started to go to church, but I needed to be shown love. I needed to be shown hope. I needed to be shown that there was yeah. something more and better out there than what I was living or what I was trying to die from. I think you would, I think you would agree, Tina, that to change someone's behavior based on fear. So for example, if you do X, you're going to go to hell. That, that may change your behavior, but it's not motivated by authentic, you know, empathy, compassion, love, exactly. strength, courage. It's motivated by the fear of going to hell. And that's where uh, some of the stops that we had on the tour uh, were spiritual stops. Mm -hmm. They weren't religious stops. And the spiritual community, there's one in particular in Denver that I went to that my last stop, the free spiritual community, they welcome everybody, you know, and religion can shame people into making things worse, especially those in recovery and those battling, um, you know, sex abuse or trauma yeah. is that there's seems to me kind of a, an odd way that, that that's, that's used to get people to, to do what they should do yeah. is to scare them. And again, I just don't think that's authentic. I think if Tina gets up in the morning and says, I want to be a better person because I want to be a better person, yes. not because I'm afraid to go to hell or I'm afraid to my, I'm afraid my community will look down at my parents or I'm afraid that, you know, um, you know, like with my, my youngest son who came out as gay a couple of years ago, Roman, you know, had I been a strong Catholic, you know, there may have been a problem with his being able to communicate with me, with that with me and homosexual, uh, gay child, um, adolescents are five times more likely to take their own lives. Yes. And so, you know, if we really want to focus on moving these narratives, we have to really focus on us, yeah. on, on, on the adults. I mean, this, this really, a lot of it comes, it comes from the adults, but the change is going to come from the kids. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And we need to give the kids safe, safe environments to come to us under any pretense. Yes. Anything. Hey, I've been sexually molested. Hey, I'm gay. Hey, I'm, you know, I, I did cocaine last weekend and not have mom and dad start fearing them into making a change in their behavior. But the, you said, reach out, love them, understand them, support them. Yeah. And then maybe just maybe we can start to see these 800 Americans a day, see these numbers start going backwards. Yeah. You know, that are dying. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's, like I said, I didn't feel like I had a voice. And the one thing I realized today is I have a voice and I have a voice for all those that don't feel like they have a voice or have passed and they never got to express their voice. And, you know, that's one of the things I teach my students is, you know, I hear you. I hear you and I see you and you matter. Like without them, there's no Victory High School. And I want them to know, like, we're I'm a better person because of my students uh, and these two young men that are sitting here right now, I mean, one is going to graduate in December. He's 16 years old. He's brilliant. 
you know, that's awesome. all of my students that's are awesome. brilliant. And that's what I tell them, you know, when before they were told they were failures, they were mistakes, they were rejects or, you know, whatever, they've been told everything. And then they come here and they're like, wait a minute, like I have purpose. I'm, I'm going to graduate. Like, you know, um, Alex, who's sitting here. How has, um, Alex, who's sitting here, he says, um, to me, he says the other day, he says, uh, you know, this is the first high school I've come to and I don't have to get high to like get through my day. Like that's huge. Yeah. Yeah. How, how has the community embraced what you're doing? So I think for the most part, the community, we have, you know, huge supporters. I'll be honest, most people like you, Jeff, that um, have lost a loved one in addictions have been our greatest supporters. Uh, they, sure. they find, sure. you know, that there's hope and that they, you know, we have our huge um, fundraiser event next Saturday. And this mother came to me, she lost her son through overdose. And um, she said, can I put together a gift basket in memory of him? I'm going to put all of his favorite candy and his favorite restaurant, you know, gift cards mm-hmm. and favorite awesome. um, uh, she got socks and, you know, all this stuff she's put into this gift basket mm-hmm. in memory of her son. And she said, Tina, this was so therapeutic for me. And I said, you know, not yeah, only is it yeah. going to bless us as a nonprofit and, But wow, like how incredible that she was able to think of all the positive things about her son and remember all of that and then put that together in a gift basket to bless someone. So it's pretty cool to see. um, Now, some people in the community, they think, you know, I I won't even say it because I don't even like to speak, you know, what I've heard. Right. Um, Right. But bottom line is, and this is what I share when I do speak out in the community, bottom line is everyone deserves a second chance. I don't know about you, but I've gotten three, four, five, six chances. Uh, Oh, yeah. And that's how I look at my students. You know, everyone deserves a second chance. And that's what we're doing with our students. You know, there's a reason there's a there's a reason why my quote on the back of all my shirts say purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. Yes. Because you're exactly right. The biggest advocates, the biggest people in this uh, space that I'm seeing since I got thrown into the mental health space five years ago are the ones that have a personal story and no different than when I came up with the tour, the, uh, the whole tour idea that came from me seeing a dad on Twitter that was raising money for breast cancer for his wife. Mm. Well, I'm sure that guy probably cared less about breast cancer until his wife got breast cancer. And then boom, all of a sudden he's an advocate. He's out there raising money. And I think that's great. I think that's great. But why can't we have passions before things become personal? Why why can't we just, why do we have to wait for something traumatic to happen before we jump our, 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 you know, and again, yes. I think that's tough because if you asked me five years ago, I was interested in making money. I was interested in impressing friends. I mean, I was an investment advisor, traveling the world, you know, spending money. It was me, 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 me. And then all of a sudden, boom, you know, life gives me or death gives me an opportunity to become a better man, not a bitter man, as as I so yes. eloquently say at my talks. But it's like, you know, I am no different than anyone else out there. And you're living proof that you know, trauma, pain, suffering, guilt, 
um, anger, uh, addiction, these actually can be motivators. Mm-hmm. They, they can be ways of inspiration as opposed to ways of destruction. And that's, that's, that's what I'm trying to tell people. I'm trying to, I mean, let me rephrase that. That's how I'm trying to show people. My tour is all about showing, not telling. And I think, I think what you're doing, starting a school is exactly the same context as I did my tour, except yours is much more impactful, Tini, because A, mine was only 95 days. <laughs> yours is going to be for a long time. And, um, you know, you are touching lives of the people that, unfortunately, on my tour, I didn't see a lot of kids. Mostly I saw the parents. And you're touching lives of the ones that really need to be touched right now. And those are, those are the kids um, mm-hmm. showing an open door policy, you know, love and compassion, uh, and allowing them to fail. I mean, that's part of living is failing. And I think we set such high standards with our kids, with academics, you know, you know, if you don't get this grade point, you can't go to Harvard, or if you don't do this, you can't play college sports or, and kids just, I mean, I think, I think there's seven division one college athletes have taken their lives this year. Mm. And the reason I know this is my son, my son's a division one golfer at South Dakota. Mm. And I know this because this is the first time in history suicide has been so prevalent in college sports. And um, it's the pressures. It's the pressures of becoming a student athlete. You know, it's difficult these days. But uh, anything that you wanted to add about what you're doing and, and is what you're doing something that you're trying to replicate? around Florida and maybe around the country? Yeah, actually, my dream is to have, I'm, I'm going to have four st- schools, actually. Uh, one in Pasco County, which is this first one, and then one in Pinellas County, which is Clearwater area. Uh, one in Tampa, which is Hillsborough County, and then one in Manatee, which is where we had met down in Bradenton, Sarasota area. So yeah, we'll have four uh, Victory High Schools. And the reason why it's Victory High School is because like you had said about being a victor, uh, not being a victim and being victorious. And so that's what we, you know, for my priority is to keep my students alive and then stabilize them mentally and emotionally. And then I'll teach them. (laughs) So that's that's what we do here is that, you know, I teach them that they're not their label, they're not their diagnosis. And let's dive deep into who they are and let's figure that out. Let's figure that out together. One of the things I love, like Alex, you just picked up a guitar and again, you know, and, and he's phenomenal, you know, he's just such an incredible uh, guitarist. And so, you know, we really dive deep into what it is your strengths are, what are your gifts and let's share those with the world. Well, that guitar thing really hit home because my son, Seth, was a very talented guitarist as well. And I bought him a white Fender. I bought him a white Fender guitar and the amps. And he would sit in the basement when he was like 15 and 16. He would play guitar, you know, all night, write lyrics and stuff. And then um, one day I noticed it was all gone. Mm. And he had sold it for drugs. Yeah. Yep. And that was the end of of playing guitar and, and ultimately down the road that, you know, that was the end of him. But yeah. So when you said that it, it just kind of, kind of hit home, but not, not in a bad way. Yeah. Uh, it just reminded me of validate, validating what we do every day. When you hear stories like that, um, how can people reach you, Tina? What's the best way to reach you to learn more about what you're doing? 
to talk to you, maybe have you guests on their podcast, you know, what are some ways people can talk to you? Yeah, they can actually go either um, to tinatalkstruth.com. That's my website. I am an author and a speaker. I had a radio show and a TV show and um, and I did comedy as well. So I, I love speaking at conferences and events and um, also my school information if they go to become just one, the number one dot com. Uh, becomejustone.com. And they can um, see, actually, one of the things that we do here is our students actually design t-shirts, and then we press them um, and actually sell t-shirts. So we have uh, t-shirts that we sell that say Hope Dealer. It says Dope Dealer, but the D, there's an H on top of it. So it's Hope Dealer. Yeah. So our students, we sell those awesome. uh, t-shirts, but yeah, on becomejustone.com, you can, you can see everything. Um, we have our fundraiser event next Saturday. So uh, we would love any type of support at it. Um, this year it's been real slow. Ticket sales have been real slow and we haven't gotten any business sponsors yet. And it's just been Real, real slow with this whole fundraising. Um, so I'm not sure what's going on, but uh, I have faith that it'll all work out. So thank you so much. Well, if it makes you feel any better, uh, I um, I went around the United States for 95 days and I didn't raise anywhere near what I would thought I would raise. And I didn't get, I think, maybe one or two corporate sponsorships. Mm. And um, yet, yet. Each day I talk to somebody that changed my life. Yeah. And so, you know, hang in, you know, be undeterred, keep living undeterred. Yes. Uh, for some reason, I think there is still something with this stigma on mental health and suicide and alcoholism and drug, and that even corporate America still is very late to the game. Yeah. Uh, until these CEOs have an overdose in their family or they have their own alcohol problems, um, a lot of companies just kind of, they don't really see the benefit of attaching their name to these projects. But yeah, yeah I, I didn't have one business. I didn't have one business reach out to me mm. on my whole tour. And, and I, and you know, I have a RV that's wrapped yeah, you know, living undeterred. Huge. Not one, not one. Now I had, mm. I had, I had people that sponsored me, uh, Rigaku, uh, analytical devices, which actually is ironically, I'm going to be on their podcast here in 30 minutes. Um, they actually, uh, it, it invested in the tour. Uh, I had some, I had some state partners like McShin. I had a dentist in Arizona, in Nevada. Um, so, you know, I've had individual, but I was just shocked that I didn't have a big corporation see the RV and say, Hey, I love your story. You know, here's a chunk of money to help you pay expenses. I'm not whining. I'm not complaining. Yeah, but it's yeah. just to me, it just gives me more fuel to my, it gives me more fuel to my fire yes. that, that. We need, we need to keep doing what we're doing. That's right. And at the end of the day, Tina, if, if we're not helping anybody, we're helping Tina and Jeff. Yeah. You know? And so I, I had someone say, well, Jeff, every time you talk, there's one person you're helping. I said, well, even if I speak in front of a group of four people and all four of them walk out thinking <laughs> this guy's crazy, well, then I'll be the one person that got helped. Yes. So my default options always... Every time I do something, I'm helping Jeff Johnston. And that's good enough for me at the end of the day. Yeah. So. Yep. Yeah. And and it's all about just planting the seeds. Well, and sometimes we never see those seeds flourish. And that's okay. Yeah. I, 
Well, I really appreciate what you're doing. I, I admire what you're doing. I hope people reach out to you. Uh, I, I, I'm putting together a mental health conference here in Cedar Rapids. Uh, and I'd love to invite you to come out and be a speaker and tell your story oh, and all thank that you. Uh, and, and share it out here. I would in the love Midwest. to. I think yeah. what I'm, what I, my conference, my conference idea is kind of pick some of the key impactful people I met on the journey and, and invite them uh, to come and share their story here locally. Uh, and then, you know, plant a seed here. Yeah. You know, I plant would a love seed that. in Cedar Rapids uh, for what, for what you're doing. Just don't hold it against yeah, me. It'll be next year sometime. I was, so I was born in Ohio. So don't hold that against me. <laughs> no, it's all right. We play. Are you a Buckeye then? Cause I'm a Hawkeye. So. No, you're not a Buckeye. No. Well, then we're fine. Then we're we're perfect. We're good. We're good. We're, we're fine. We're good. Yes. Hey, listen. Uh, thanks for your time, and I really, really admire your infectious smile and your laughter and your personality. Thank you. Uh, that's one thing I remember from you sitting next to me on the panel was you laughed like the whole time you talked. Oh, <laughs> which is thanks. yeah, laugh. And you know, you're telling your personal story. And how horrific, but you find ways to laugh. Yes. And I think at the end of the day, we have to laugh. Even if our own personal stories are traumatic and tragic, we have to find some, some way to laugh. Absolutely. There's humor in, you know, there's healing in humor and I always find joy in the journey. Right. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot and uh, keep living undeterred. Okay. Thank you so much. Appreciate you, Jeff.